If you would, open your Bibles to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. And also to Luke chapter 7. Uh, We'll look at Luke 7 first, but we'll spend most of our time in John chapter 11. We come to the last in our series on miracles, in which we have sought to focus on the significance and the meanings of miracles. And we've done this by looking at the miracles during the earthly ministry of Jesus. Last week, we examined the casting out of demons. And we focused on one particular incident. We looked at others uh, very briefly. But um, the man, according to Luke's account in Matthew and Mark, there are two men uh, who is possessed by legion. That is, he is possessed by thousands of demons. As a result of this, we are told that he is naked, he lives apart, he lives in solitary places, he had superhuman strength, he was able to break the chains that people used to bind him, and he lived among the tombs, he frequented the places of the dead. Matthew adds that he and his companion made the area impassable to travelers, people couldn't pass that way. And Mark writes, night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. I think that in reading this, this is the picture generally we have of someone who is demon-possessed. But we also notice that there are less expected, um, certainly unexpected expressions of demon possession. In Luke chapter 12, there's a woman who is crippled because she has a demon. In Matthew 9, there's a man who is mute because he has a demon. And then in Mark 9, there is the boy who is both deaf and mute because of a demon. This is not to say that all of these conditions are the result of demon possession. And we need to be very careful about that or to demonize conditions or persons or their actions to say, well, that is obviously something that is demonic. So I mentioned last week, and we've seen this before, from N.T. Wright, uh, the British theologian, that evil is the force of anti-creation and anti-life, the force which opposes and seeks to deface and destroy God's good work of space, time, and matter, and above all, God's image-bearing human creatures. That is to say, the work of Satan and his minions is against that which God has created, specifically, or particularly, those who are made in God's image. And in the series on evil, we looked at this. We have a tendency to, you know, the white hats and the black hats. You know, and there's a line, we're on the good side and there are on the bad side. But uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was in exile from Russia um, after the Soviet Union collapsed, he went back and he was greeted by people as he traveled across Russia, including the bureaucrats who had been in power and who had, in fact, abused and tyrannized their fellow citizens. And um, people were rather critical of him. They objected. Um, Why is he hanging out with these people who are part of an evil system? And he responded that the line between good and evil is never simply between us and them. The line between good and evil runs through each of us that we both have, we all have that capacity. We need to be careful. There were two things that stood out to me as I was preparing the sermon for last Sunday. Um, The first is the matter of created versus uncreated. Uh, Oftentimes we speak of natural versus supernatural. 
And so in Luke chapter 8, which tells the story of this man who is demon-possessed, right before it, we have uh, Jesus in the boat. There's a storm. He calms the storm. And people say, oh, that's Jesus' power over the natural realm. But then when he casts out the demons, legion, that's his power over the supernatural. And I think that that is really the wrong way to think of things. We have one that is uncreated, that is God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Everything else is created. Okay? It is better for us to think in terms of visible and invisible. And so the demonic forces may be invisible to us, but they are still created. And we shouldn't somehow think that they are higher than us. Uh, They may be more powerful than us. But they are created beings just as we are. Um, And Jesus has power over all created things, both visible and invisible. The second thing that struck me in preparing for last week's sermon is that the man's humanity was restored. When Jesus cast out the demon, the the demons, the people of the town come to see him and there he is, he's clothed, he's sitting at the feet of Jesus, he's calm. Uh, His humanity has been restored. And I think you could make the case that in most of the miracles that we have seen in this study, that in fact is what Jesus does. He restores that which was taken away, that which was lacking. Today, the last of the series of miracles, we will look at Jesus raising the dead. And I want to consider two incidents here. The first one was our first text when we began this series. It's found in Luke chapter 7. Listen or follow along as I read uh, Luke 7, beginning at verse 11. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praise God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. The news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Some things to consider about this miracle before moving on. First of all, the loss of a loved one is always painful. But in this particular case, we have a woman who has lost her husband. She is a widow. And now she loses her only son. We are told that when Jesus saw this, his heart went out to her. Please keep this in mind. Remember this. We'll come back to it later in the sermon. Jesus tells her, don't cry. And then he touches the coffin, which by Old Testament law would render him unclean, just as when he touched the leper. He spoke to the dead man, young man, I say to you, get up. And the young man got up. He was raised from the dead. He began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. The people were amazed, and they said, a great prophet has appeared among us. This brings up an important point. This is, in some sense, an Old Testament miracle. In 1 Kings chapter 17, we read of Elijah raising a widow's son from the dead. Um, you may remember the story of the, woman of Zarephath, the widow of Zarephath. Let me just read it to you quickly. So he, Elijah, went to Zarephath, 
When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little jug, a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Before moving on, I would just mention that when Jesus spoke in Nazareth, after his time in the wilderness, he went back and he read from, Israel, uh, from Isaiah. He mentions this specific incident, this particular woman. He says there were a lot of widows in Israel, and yet Elijah went to this woman in Zarephath, not part of Israel. The next verse. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, what have you against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? And then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room in the house or into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. So when Jesus raises this widow's son, people said a prophet must be among us because, in fact, Elijah the prophet had done this. He had raised a widow's son to life. His successor, Elisha, also raised uh, a boy to life, but his mother was not a widow. This is the Shunammite woman. And it's interesting that Nine, this town, we think, is actually near Shunem, where the Shunammite woman lived. So there is a tradition, or had been for centuries, that this was a place where a boy had been raised from the dead. And Jesus does this for this widow's son. The second incident of Jesus raising someone from the dead is found in John chapter 11. And we will look at this um, at some length. Let me read to you first the first six verses. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that the God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. 
Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Let me just give you sort of a, a timeline, a reconstruction here. Lazarus becomes sick, and then the messenger is sent to Jesus. We don't know exactly where Jesus was, but just doing the math, he was probably four days' journey away, uh, about 150 kilometers. The messenger arrives. Jesus says, well, this is not going to end in death, which means that Lazarus must still have been alive at that point. Jesus and his disciples delayed two more days, um, after which then Jesus tells him, we'll read this in a bit, that Lazarus is dead, and they make the four-day journey to Bethany. And so when they get there, they find that Lazarus has been dead for four days. This, the beginning of this just brings up a whole lot of questions. Um, first of all, why does Jesus say this is not going to end, death when, end in death when it clearly Lazarus does in fact die? Is Jesus wrong? Is he just guessing? No, I think what Jesus is saying is that ultimately Lazarus will be raised from the dead. He will die, but that will not be the end of the story. Secondly, how can we reconcile verse, verses 5 and 6? How can we reconcile the fact that Jesus loves Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, and yet he, he delays? He doesn't go um, or doesn't speak a word, you know, and heal Lazarus from a distance. John is very clear, though, and I want us to be clear, that Jesus did, in fact, love Lazarus and his sisters. There can be no question of that. But this brings up the third question. If you love someone, why would you stay away? How is it that he can justify this? And I don't ask this in a, in a light way. I think this is really important. If he loved Lazarus, should he not have gone to Bethany as quickly as he could? Uh, maybe even get on a donkey to make the trip shorter and get to the side of his friend. In this miracle, perhaps more than any other miracle in the ministry of Jesus, we are given insight into the reality that God, in fact, has a plan and a purpose for what happens in each life. We may not understand it. And at the time, we may not like it. But God, in fact, does have a purpose. Verse 7. Then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you. And yet you are going back there. He had actually been preaching in Judea and went up to Galilee to get away from the Jews who were trying to kill him. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve days of sunlight or daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, called Didymus, or the twin, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Jesus announces, I'm going back to Judea. And his disciples like, they tried to kill you. you. We just left there. They tried to kill you. Why are you going back? And um, there are some people who have suggested that 
that Jesus delayed going back because he was afraid of what was going to happen. This is not the case. Um, and he, he says, okay, you, know, you have 12 hours of sunlight, of daylight, in which you can do things. At night, you can't see, and so you will stumble. So now is the time for him to do something. It isn't time for him to quit, and he is not quitting. Um, the time will come quickly enough when Jesus will not be able to work. He will be put to death. The same is true of his disciples. It's the same is true of us. So Jesus tells them that Lazarus has fallen asleep. They don't get it. So he finally tells them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Um, We might be a bit concerned that the disciples didn't understand what Jesus was saying. Yeah, but we already know how the story turned out. Okay, so we need to be careful that we don't judge them too harshly. And when the messenger came, he did not say Lazarus was dead, but that he was sick. Um, The disciples don't want to go back, and if he's just sleeping, then then you leave well enough alone, and Jesus doesn't have to go back. But then Jesus says, he is dead, and for your sake, I am glad I was not there. These are hard words. I'm glad that Lazarus died. But God has a purpose in it all. And then here we have Thomas saying to the others, let us also go that we may die with him. Usually we think of Thomas as doubting Thomas. But this is a case where he's like, okay, Jesus is going back to Judea. The Jews want to kill him. Let's go back with Jesus. And if necessary, we'll let them kill us as well. If they're going to kill Jesus, we will die with him as well. And this is really quite remarkable. So Jesus gets to Bethany, verse number 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. For four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. And many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. The point is made uh, several times that Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. It was the Jewish custom based on Mosaic law that the same day a person dies, he or she is to be buried. And we see this, by the way, with the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, Ananias drops dead and they take him out and bury him. And then Sapphira comes in, uh, she drops dead and they bury her. This was the Jewish custom. Um, and among uh, observant Jews, even today, it is that way. Within 24 hours, uh, the body must be interred. But the emphasis here on four days is important because according to rabbinic tradition, your spirit or your soul would hang around the body for three days in case there was a possibility that you might be resuscitated, that the soul or the spirit might return to the body. After four days, your soul leaves. And so it's four days within the Jewish way of thinking, the soul has left. I mean, 
Lazarus is dead. Okay, his soul or his spirit is gone. By the way, this idea of the spirit being there for three days is not a biblical teaching. This is not scriptural teaching. Uh, Paul tells us um, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. The story of the rich man and Lazarus. They die and the, the beggar uh, goes to heaven and the rich man is in torment. I think Jesus delayed purposely so that people who thought, oh, okay, his soul's gone. There's no way this could ever Uh, that Jesus could, in fact, raise him from the dead. Because they're only two miles from Jerusalem, there are a lot of people from Jerusalem who have come out to join and to mourn with Martha and Mary. They're called Jews, and this is a side note. In John's writings, Jews mean the people from Judea. Uh, If you're from Galilee, you're Jewish. But in John's writings, the people from Judea are specifically the Jews, and these are the people who oppose Jesus. Martha hears that Jesus is coming. She goes to meet him. And in the verses of the section, we have a wonderful dialogue between Jesus and a woman of faith. If only you had been here. I don't think she's rebuking him or chastising him for not getting there sooner. Uh, as if to say, you, you should have been here. You ought to have been here. But these are words of grief, but also of faith. That she knows Jesus could have healed him. She says, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Even in her grief, in which it is so easy to lose faith in God and to trust him, she is confident there is faith. And Jesus tells her, your brother will rise again. He goes, yeah, yeah, I know at the resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. It's a very powerful passage. Um, Jesus is speaking of raising her brother now. She's thinking about something at the end of time. Um, She doesn't fully understand. That's okay. If we'd been there, I think we would not have understood as well. But he does ask her a very pointed question. Do you believe this? Do you believe? And she answers, absolutely. Um, You are the Christ, the Son of God who was to come to the world. Look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, that's Mary, we've skipped the section here, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? In these verses, I think we find great emotion among the most emotion we find in the life of Jesus. Particularly verse 35, Jesus wept. The question then comes up, why did he weep? Why did Jesus weep at this time? Um, I think the key is found in verse number 33. That Jesus sees that Mary and others are in fact weeping. They are grieving for the loss of Lazarus. And Jesus was deeply moved and troubled. The language here is quite strong. In the King James, he groaned in the spirit. I don't usually use Greek. um, I do on occasion. But on this, in this case, it's really illuminating. First, deeply moved in spirit actually comes from a word that is used of horses when they snort. It's a very 
It's an audible thing that, that Jesus is, in fact, very deeply moved. He lets out a groan of indignation. He is very upset at this. So there is an aspect of anger. But also we're told that he's troubled. Um, the trouble points to him physically shaking. So we don't have a stoic healer here. We don't have a man who just has, sort of has his hands in front and says, oh yeah, that's where Lazarus is. We have a man who is deeply troubled, but I would also say that he is angered. Why? What's this all about? Some have said that he's angry at those around him, that they don't believe, that they're an unbelief, and that he's angry at them. Some say he's angered at the hypocrisy of the mourners. I think both of these are wrong. I think, yes, he is moved by their grief, but I think he is angry at death itself. He is angered at death. He is not grieving as someone who has no hope, but he is angered. He is troubled. He is shaking because of what illness, what death has done to this, his friend, the man that he loved. Sin, sickness, death have come into the world and look at what they have done. And Jesus is angered, but also he grieves and so he weeps. When the people see this, they're like, well, he must have really loved this guy. Look, look at how he's reacting to this. But then they also doubt. Couldn't he, you know, he, he, he helped the blind man to see. Couldn't he have gotten rid of this? Apparently not a serious illness, but it led to his death. Couldn't he have done something about that? But then Jesus does raise Lazarus from the dead. Verse 38. Jesus once more deeply moved came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across at the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been dead for, he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Things to consider. If the raising of the widow's son is an Old Testament miracle, this is a New Testament miracle. And it points to something that will happen in a few days when Jesus will be crucified, will be buried, but then will be raised from the dead. Also consider, we've seen in this series, that generally when Jesus performs a miracle, there needs to be a conversation. He doesn't sort of sprinkle pixie dust or wave his hand and people are healed. He wants to talk to them. And in many cases, he wants to touch them. And so in this story, we have extended conversations between Jesus and his disciples, between Jesus and Martha. Jesus wants to talk about these things. 
Even now, I don't think that we do. We want the miracle, we pray for a miracle, but in a sense, we don't want the commercial. You know, we don't want the theology. Just, just do this magical thing, heal this person. That's all we want. But Jesus wants to talk. Also consider that Jesus loved Lazarus and his sisters. Um, this is the point I think that comes to mind when I read this passage. I mean, it's repeated a number of times that Jesus loved him. Jesus is moved by the situation, by the death of his friend. And as was the case with the widow's son, his heart went out to her. Remember, I told you to remember that. Jesus is emotionally invested in this situation. But lastly, as with the other miracles, these two were temporary in nature. The widow's son eventually did die. And Lazarus also died, as did all the people that Jesus healed. To me, this means that the miracles are pointing to something beyond themselves. They're pointing to the new creation. They're pointing to life after the resurrection. In the case of Lazarus, it's pointing to the resurrection of Jesus, in which Jesus will be raised from the dead, never to die again. That's not true with Lazarus. He still has, in a sense, the same body. But when Jesus is raised, he is raised with a new body, with the body of a new creation. And he will never die again. So, let's, let's wrap up this series that we've been looking at miracles. There's, first of all, let me just say, there's so much more to say about miracles that I've not said and what they signify. But what I want to do is to close with a passage from Matthew chapter 8. I don't know if you remember, but in Matthew 8, we have the story of the healing of the leper, where the man says, if you want to, you can make me clean. Jesus touches a man who has leprosy, who is unclean, and he says, I am willing, be clean. Then you have the healing of the centurion's servant. You have the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, the calming of the storm, and then at the end of chapter 8, the healing of two blind men. But in the midst of chapter 8, we find this, and it's a quotation from Isaiah 53. This is um, Matthew 8:16. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with the word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. Usually when we read this verse in Isaiah 53, we think of the cross and salvation. We don't think of Jesus healing. And in fact, years ago when I preached through Matthew, when I came to this passage afterwards, I was confronted by several people um, and they said, you're wrong about this. This is about the cross. This is about salvation. This is not about some small thing like disease. It's, it's small if it's not you. But, um, I think that that is too narrow a view. Matthew applies it to the earthly ministry of Jesus. Jesus' entire ministry was a living out of the cross, even before he got to the cross. He touched a leper, and then, if you wish, took on himself the uncleanness of that leper. He took Peter's mother-in-law by the hand and took her uncleanness as well. 
he touched the coffin of the widow's son. The entire ministry of Jesus, as we see it here on earth, was that of a suffering servant. He was willing to take on himself and to carry away anything that was wrong with a person. From leprosy to demon possession and even death. I don't think this is to say that he was empathic. But in the same way that we think of him as taking our sins on himself on the cross, during his earthly ministry he took on people's diseases as the suffering servant. The miracles of Jesus were far more personal, I think, than we ever realize. This isn't simply a question, or it isn't a question at all, of magic, of sprinkling dust on people, waving his hand. When Jesus heals someone, he takes that on himself. It's very personal. And I would argue that it remains so today. So that when we pray and we ask that God would heal someone, we shouldn't think that it's just a question of waving a wand and God heals someone. There is a very personal aspect of taking upon himself our sicknesses and our diseases. As I mentioned at the beginning of the series, I think people are more open to miracles today than perhaps they were 50 years ago, you know, 100 years ago when we were sort of at the height of the modern age. I think people are much more open to what they call the spiritual. But I think they still see it and we still see it as impersonal. When we ask the Lord to touch someone, isn't that what we mean? When they, we ask that God would heal someone, what are we thinking? That God's up far away and he just sort of waves his hand and the person gets well. There is this personal, personal aspect to it. And I think this is what miracles are intended to signify. And I'm afraid that we've lost sight of that. But as we look at miracles in the ministry of Jesus, we see that they are indeed personal. That's why he always wants to talk. Remember the woman who was bleeding for 12 years and she thought, if I could just touch his robe, then I'll be healed. And in fact, she was. But Jesus wants to talk to her. Who touched me? You know, it's, it's a very personal interaction between Jesus, the one who is going to take on the disease, the sickness, and the person who is afflicted. So we should not be surprised that his heart goes out to the widow. We shouldn't be surprised that he weeps at the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus is very much engaged and remains so to this present day. So that when we pray, I think our prayers should be much more personal than oftentimes they are. And ask that God would work in people's lives. And he does. He continues to. And we should be grateful. Let's pray together. Our Father, when we pray to you, I wonder what we think we're doing if we're speaking to this impersonal force, block of stone, a computer, something. We don't think that, in fact, you're real and you're a person.
But we see this in Jesus. That Lazarus dies, he is allowed to die, that your power and your glory might be seen as Jesus raises him from the dead. We do not always understand why you do what you do or why you allow certain things to happen. But may we be like Martha and trust that you will do what is right, that all things are possible with you. Some of us come from a tradition that It's not that big on miracles. Uh, We leave that to others, to the charismatics. And in doing so, we have lost sight of the reality of the person of Jesus who loves us, who is deeply moved by our troubles and our diseases, and that all things are possible with him. All power has been given to him in heaven and on earth. Help us to trust you and believe that you love us as Jesus loved Lazarus. doesn't mean things won't come our way that we don't like, but it does mean we will not be alone. Thank you for bringing us together today. We pray for those that aren't able to be with us because of illness and ask that you would raise them up, that you would touch them. Pray for Tom. You would give him wisdom as he deals with his mother's situation. We're glad that she's doing better. Guide them as to what they should do. And for Grant in his last semester of school, watch over him and keep him safe. And guide him as he finishes, as he completes this part of his journey. Thank you for bringing us together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.